We'll go ahead and take your Bibles and turn to Acts 16. And this summer, our Sunday sermons have unexpectedly turned into responses to uh, what we're learning on Wednesday nights in our series on the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. And uh, this past Wednesday, we looked at Christ's letter to the church in Philadelphia. And one of the key concepts of that letter or mentioned in that letter that stuck out to me this past week was how God sovereignly opens and closes doors. This is a familiar concept within Christian circles. So much so, it's part of our Christian vocabulary uh, when it comes to God guiding and directing us or us discerning his will for our lives. We often mention or we hear others refer to open and closed doors, right? Well, while this is a biblical concept, we need to keep in mind that every reference in the New Testament about open and closed doors is talking about an opportunity to share the gospel or some other ministry opportunity. So we need to be careful that we don't apply this generally to, you know, we're buying a house and the Lord opened that door or closed that door or, you know, we were trying to decide if we're going to go here or go there and the Lord opened this door or that door. Again, these, that expression, opening closed doors, uh, really should be reserved probably for uh, the gospel and for ministry. Let me read for you the, the examples, that, how it's used in the New Testament. Acts 14, verse 27. Peter said, They began to report all things God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 16, 8, Paul says, I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost for a wide door for effective service is open to me. 2 Corinthians 2, 12, Now when I come came to trust for the gospel of Christ, a door was opened for me in the Lord. And then in Colossians 4, 3, Paul asked the believers in, in the church in Colossae to pray that God may open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ. And in the case of the church in Philadelphia in Revelation 3, the door that God opened to them was to spread the gospel into East Asia. Here, in the case of the Apostle Paul in Acts 16, the door God opened to him was to spread the gospel into Europe. And in this passage, we see how God guided and directed Paul at the outset of his second missionary journey. And, and Paul's second missionary journey really begins in chapter 15, verse 36, and it got off to a not-so-good start because as they were preparing to leave, uh, Paul and Barnabas, who had uh, led the first missionary journey and had partnered together for the gospel, had a falling out, and they were, had, a, had a sharp disagreement about whether or not John Mark should accompany them on the second missionary journey. John Mark had abandoned them kind of halfway through the first journey, and so Paul says, I don't want that guy. We don't need that guy. Uh, I can't trust that guy. We've got to have somebody we can trust. And Barnabas said, hey, let's give this guy a second chance. I think he's the right guy. We should do this. And they disagreed, and so they decided, okay, fine. Let's go our different ways, our separate ways. And so Barnabas took John Mark, and Paul uh, took Silas and uh, headed out on 
their second missionary journey. And in chapter 16, verses 1 through 5, we see that the first thing Paul did when he arrived in Derby um, and Lystra was to acquire another young disciple like John Mark. This time his name was Timothy. And so he met Timothy there, and uh, this young man was commended highly to him. And so he had him circumcised um, and uh, had him... Um, Come along with him, join he and Silas on their journey. But notice verse 6. This is where we'll start our text this morning. They passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Mycenae, they were tr trying to go into Bithynia, and the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. And passing by Mycenae, they came to Troas. This is a classic example of of Proverbs 16.9, which says this, the mind of man plans his way, but, how's the rest of it go? But the Lord directs his steps. That's an important verse that hopefully you are aware of, you maybe even have it memorized, you find yourself falling back on that verse many times. Um, but in Paul's mind... Right? The, man of man, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. In the mind of Paul, in Paul's mind, he had planned to revisit the churches he had planted in Central Asia during his first missionary journey and then fan out further until all of Asia was evangelized. But God had other plans. God planned for the people in the cities of Ephesus and Smyrna and Thyatira and Pergamum and Sardis and Philadelphia and Laodicea. Those, those sound familiar? Yeah, these are the areas that have been yet to be evangelized. And so um, God planned for those cities and also the regions of Bithynia and Pontus to be evangelized and or equipped at another time through another servant other than Paul. In fact, we learned in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 1, these are the very people that Peter addressed in his letter. So it seems that Peter was the one who perhaps was uh, God used to reach this, the, these areas. 1 Peter 1, 1, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So in keeping with God's sovereign plan to spread the gospel throughout the entire world, which by the way is the theme of the book of Acts, and so we just kind of are parachuting right down the middle of it here this morning in Acts 16, but if you go back to Acts chapter 1, the theme verse, which really has the outline of the book of Acts built into it, is Acts 1.8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. And so that was God's ultimate plan, was to use the apostles, right, to take the gospel to the entire world. And so here, God, in keeping with that plan, providentially redirected Paul's steps because he wanted him to evangelize Europe, namely Macedonia and Achaia, modern-day Greece, and reach the people living in the cities of Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens, and Corinth with the gospel and eventually Europe would become the base 
for missionary outreach to bring the gospel to the remotest part of the earth. Before we go on, let me just ask you a simple question based on verses 6 through 8. Have you ever had well-intentioned plans fall through for no apparent reason? I mean, it seemed like the right thing or the right person or the right place at the right time at the right price, and you even had the right motive as best you could tell. You had planned to go to a certain school. You had planned to take a particular job or marry a particular person or buy a particular house or have a certain number of kids or join a particular church, and things just didn't work out. And it was very disappointing. It was very confusing to you, I'm sure. I'm sure Paul and his missionary team were disappointed. They were confused when none of their plans to evangelize the province of Asia seemed to work out. And it wasn't until Paul received a vision from God that all the roadblocks they had run into finally made sense. Notice verse 9. A vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So here they were, heading back out to Asia Minor. The Spirit of God forbids them to speak the word anywhere they were planning on speaking it. So they headed north to Mycenae with the intent of sharing the gospel in Bithynia, which was along the coast of the Black Sea, but the Holy Spirit shut them down up there as well. So they had no other choice but to travel all the way to the west coast of the province of Asia in the city of Troas, or to the city of Troas, from where they could look across the Asian Sea to see Greece. Now, we don't know how the Holy Spirit hindered their progress. It's not stated specifically. We're left to assume that he spoke either directly to them or he providentially orchestrated the circumstances to close all the doors except the ones leading to Europe. And so Paul and his co-laborers had high hopes of evangelizing Asia, but they kept getting doors slammed in their faces. Someone said it this way, Asia was merely God's hallway for his men to pass through. Along the way, they jiggled doorknobs and tested locks, but no doors opened until they reached the very end of the corridor. So, Luke records here that they began making plans to travel across the Asian Sea to Philippi, which was a leading city in Macedonia, having concluded that God was leading them to evangelize Europe. One of the most memorable experiences of my life happened in the summer of 1989 when I had the privilege of traveling to Europe with a group of students from the Master's College to be part of the launch of an historic mission uh, endeavor called Love Europe. Anybody ever heard of that, Love Europe? It's kind of of an obscure thing at the time, but it was initiated by a mission organization called Operation Mobilization which was founded by a, name named George, by a man named George Verwer. How many of you guys have heard of OM and George Verwer? Okay, that's why I'm talking about him. You need to know, this is good church history here, modern church history. Um, OM traces its roots to the prayers of a New Jersey housewife. This is cool, ladies. If you're thinking, what am I doing for the kingdom? I'm staying home, changing diapers, right? Washing dishes and clothes, and what kind of impact can I have for the kingdom? Well, OM traces its roots to the prayers of a New Jersey housewife 
who in the 1950s began to pray for the students in the local high school asking God to touch the world through their lives. And one of those students lived next door to her and she gave him a gospel of John and he later committed his life to follow Christ at a Billy Graham crusade. And within a year after that, he had led 200 of his classmates to Christ. That young man was George Verwer who, by the way, just died back in April, just a few months ago. Uh, In college, George Verwer had an increasing burden to spread the gospel overseas. He and two of his friends met regularly to pray. They became became burdened for uh, the spiritual needs in Mexico. So in 1957, they uh, sold some of their possessions to raise money, gave up their summer vacation, and they went down to Mexico and they distributed Gospels with John and other Christian literature there. Uh, They did the same the following two summers. And then when they graduated in 1960, they traveled to Europe and did the same thing there. Starting in Spain, they began to just share the gospel, hand out gospel literature. But the task of reaching Europe was overwhelming for these three young, zealous missionaries. And they realized that God's plan was to mobilize Christ's church to reach the nations, not, not just for three zealous college guys to try to reach the whole continent for Christ. And so they began to share their vision, and as they did, hundreds of Christians responded, and Operation Mobilization was born. In the summer of 1963, over 2,000 people traveled to Europe They broke up into teams, blanketed the continent to train and equip churches to carry God's word to their nation. However, sadly, like most missionary endeavors, over time, the number of participants that would show up to these summer conferences began to dwindle. And so in the late 80s, there was a renewed vision to share the gospel with Europe and to reach the gospel. Uh, or excuse me, reach Europe with the gospel. And so that led to this, this movement called Love Europe. And so OM's vision for Love Europe was to share the gospel with everyone in Europe in 10 years. So between 1989 and 1999, they wanted to have everybody in the whole continent of Europe hear the gospel. It was a very ambitious endeavor. And so they planned originally for 5,000 young people from uh, 50 nations to participate in the first conference uh, held in the summer of 89, but instead about 7,000 young people from 76 nations showed up in Offenburg, Germany to be trained and equipped and then sent out to evangelize Europe. I was one of those 7,000 young people. It was super cool. I get chills even thinking about it now. I can see it was like yesterday standing in this big kind of tented Colosseum, and the whole week we just spent time worshiping the Lord and praising Him, and we would break up in these training uh, sessions, and they would train us on how to share the gospel and how to understand the European culture, and uh, it was just an amazing time. Meeting, it was really the first taste of heaven I ever got, being with 7,000 people from all over the world, 7,000 Christians from all over the world, Um, and what that was, what heaven was going to be like. Well, at the end of that week, uh, they sent us all out to different places, and so they gave our team this little old dilapidated van, and they, they, we all crammed in it, and they gave us some tents, and they sent us down uh, to the coast of the Adriatic Sea, uh, where it used to be called Yugoslavia, 
just north of Dubrovnik, if anybody's a kind of a, a ge- ge- geography buff, you kind of know that's a very famous historic town. Uh, but, but our job there, our goal there was to spend two weeks camping out with the people that had come from all over Europe down to camp out on their holiday, right? And uh, so they were setting up tents right next to us, and we just got to share the gospel uh, for two weeks with all these Europeans vacationing there. The great tragedy, though, of Europe is that it was once the hub for world missions. I mean, you think about some of the greatest missionaries that we talk about today, William Carey, Hudson Taylor, C.T. Studd, um, Amy Carmichael, Henry Martin, they're all Europeans. And it was European Christians who originally carried the gospel to the continents of Africa and North America and South America. And yet today, Europe is considered a post-Christian society. It's become a spiritual wasteland. In fact, there's a vacuum, there's a spiritual vacuum there, and if you, if you kind of stay in touch with what's, what's going on over there in the, the, the Europe, it, it's, it's the, the Muslims are filling that vacuum, and they're taking over Europe, and it's happening already in our country, up in Michigan and the, around the Great Lakes area. If you watch the news, that's happening. Um, they're on a mission. But when you go, to, you go to Europe today, you, you see the, the landscape just dotted with church buildings everywhere. They're everywhere. And yet they've been abandoned by most of their congregations, and they're nothing more now than historical landmarks. And if there is a church that's still open, it's typically liberal and filled with unbelievers who are simply just going out of tradition. And Europeans have develop the the notorious reputation of being spiritually cold and closed to the gospel. But that's not how it always was. I say all that, that we must not forget the rich Christian heritage of Europe. And what we see in this chapter is that the Apostle Paul was the one that God used to originally bring the gospel to Europe. And unlike Europe today, there was a wide open door for the gospel and people's hearts were soft and receptive and open to the gospel. And so in Luke's record here, and it's really an eyewitness account, Luke was Paul's personal physician and he followed Paul along uh, around on his missionary journeys. And so here we have Luke's eyewitness account of Paul's ministry in the city of Philippi. And here in this chapter, he described the conversion of three people who became the founding members of the first church in Europe. And I think these these three striking conversions should remind us that God saves all sorts of people in all sorts of ways, which should inspire us to tell everyone everywhere what they must do to be saved. So let's look at these three striking conversions. First of all, a businesswoman. A businesswoman, verse 11. So putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on uh, the day following to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in this city for some days. So Luke just kind of gives a travel log here 
telling, telling us here that it took him about two days to make that 150-mile journey from Troas across the Asian Sea, stopping off at the island of Samothrace and then on to the port city of Neapolis. And then about eight miles inland, they traveled to the city of Philippi, which was a Roman colony uh, populated primarily with Roman citizens. And that's probably why there was not enough Jewish inhabitants to warn a synagogue. Because if you're, as we'll notice in the next verse here, Paul typically, as soon as he showed up in a city, he would go straight where? To the synagogue. And as a former Jew, or I should say as a Jewish convert to Christianity, he could relate to the Jews and he began sharing the gospel to those in the synagogue. But notice verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that there would be a place of prayer. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. So again, that's evidence that there was no synagogue for them to go to in the city of Philippi. Um, Again, there apparently wasn't enough Jewish inhabitants there. So Paul and his uh, um, companions went a little ways out of town looking for a place to pray, a, a place to worship. And they came upon a group of women gathered by a river, and they immediately sat down and began to share with them the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. I love that little phrase at the end of verse 13. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. That was the Apostle Paul. I mean, wherever he went, he would just show up and start sharing the gospel. He, he wasn't just going out to the river. He was going to share the gospel. He wasn't just going to go to Walmart. He was going to share the gospel. He wasn't just going to pump some gas. He was going to share the gospel. He wasn't just going to Kroger. He was going to share the gospel. He wasn't just going to school. He was going to share the gospel. He wasn't just going to work. He was going to share the gospel. You see the mindset? That, that's the mindset all of us should have, that, that every, all these other things that we do, you know, we go to the movies, we go on vacation, we go out to eat, it's, it's really an opportunity for us simply to share the gospel. Notice verse 14. A woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? We just studied that a few weeks ago on Wednesday night, one of the churches of Revelation there in Revelation 2 and 3, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening, and the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. So here was a businesswoman named Lydia uh, from the city of Thyatira, which was in the western part, uh, province of Asia. Uh, It was famous for its special dyes. We learned about that, particularly the color purple, They had perfected that in Thyatira, and so here she had brought her wares from Thyatira, set up shop there in Philippi, maybe was actually living there and and, uh, applying her trade there. And uh, and so it says that that, uh, she was attentively listening to Paul as he shared the gospel, and, and God graciously opened her heart and mind to understand and receive the gospel message. You may want to underline that phrase if you're, if you're into that, marking up your Bible. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. One of the things I love about Luke is that he stressed the sovereignty of God and salvation throughout the book of Acts. Look at Acts chapter 11, verse 18. Peter was reporting back in Jerusalem to the Jewish believers 
that the Gentiles now were getting saved. And they're like, what? We thought this was all about us, and now Gentiles are getting into the act here, and they're coming to Christ? Notice Acts 11, verse 18 When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. And then look at chapter 13, verse 38. Excuse me, verse 48. Paul began to share the gospel with the Gentiles himself. And in chapter 13, verse 48, it says, when the Gentiles heard this, the the gospel, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. In other words, the only way a person is able to get saved is if God sovereignly chooses to open up their dead hearts and their blind eyes. Paul said in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they're spiritually appraised. And he went on in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, talking about the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And then in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel. I point out those verses just to remind us that whether or not someone comes to Christ is not based on our ability to persuasively present the gospel to them, but it's up to God's ability to providentially open up their hearts. I mean, you could talk to people to their blue in the face, right? And you could be super intelligent, you could be super eloquent, and nothing happens. And you get frustrated and you feel like somehow you messed up or you, your gospel presentation was deficient or uh, I know when I was a young man and I was zealous about sharing the gospel with everyone I came into contact with, I'd often leave when somebody didn't respond favorably to the gospel. I'd walk away and go, oh man, if I had just said that, if I just remembered that verse, that would have made the difference. That would have been the deal maker. Well, I was putting way more pressure on myself than God ever intended any of us to have. But it's not up to us to save people. It's up to him. And so hopefully that frees you up, right, to not feel like when it's not up to you, right, I can, I can do this. I can do this. I can share the gospel, just be faithful to present the gospel, and walk away and say, okay, God, they're all yours. And be good with that. So God opened up her heart. And verse 15 says, and when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay, and she, she prevailed upon us. So the first thing that Lydia did after getting saved, after her eyes were opened and she embraced the gospel, received Christ as her Lord and Savior, she 
wanted to publicly confess her faith in Christ by being baptized. Which, by the way, we're going to see later in this chapter, that was the same response of the jailer who was converted. The first thing that he did was get baptized. And so my question for you is, have you been baptized since you have been converted, since you committed your life to follow Jesus? Have you been baptized? It's the pattern of Scripture. And, and God, uh, Jesus told the disciples, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, right? So it's a, a command from the Lord. And it's one of the ordinances of the church. And I want to encourage you, if you've yet to be baptized, to consider doing that the next time we have an opportunity, uh, we have one of our baptism services. But notice what else. Not only did she get baptized, she also proved the genuineness of her faith in Christ by insisting that Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke and and maybe their entourage uh, stay at her house, which eventually became the host home for the church. Notice verse 40, the last verse of this chapter, they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. So she opened up her home for this baby church. Um, one commentator just said it, described Lydia this way. She simply threw herself and her resources into the work of the gospel without reserve and without delay. Her home became both a haven and a center of witness for the apostles in their time of Philippi. So God opened her heart and Lydia opened her home. Some of you may be uh, familiar with the book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key by Rosaria Butterfield and she just describes her own personal experience. Her and her husband on a weekly basis open up their home to their neighborhood to all the unbelieving neighbors and just they have Taco Tuesday or whatever and they just bring them all in the house and, and uh, they, they get to know them and they, they spend time with them and they have a Bible study and they pray together and, and, and it's just a beautiful picture of how God has given most of us the resource of a home and how we can leverage that for the gospel and uh, be hospitable to others like God has been hospitable to us. I'm so grateful for Vi. I just looking out there and seeing you, Vi, the house of Lydia in Uganda. Uh, this is where you got that vision, right? Was, hey, I've got some resources and they need some housing over there in, in the SOS compound there. And so I'm going to rally some people in our church to, to raise some money and we're going to build a house of Lydia. And it's all about basically the a heart of hospitality, just wanting to serve missionaries who come and, and serve uh, traveling uh, instructors and professors and, and uh, things like that. So I love how this section of scripture has really inspired at least a few people in our church uh, to, to put this into practice. So you have a businesswoman who gets converted. Secondly, you get a fortune teller who gets converted. Notice verse 16. It happened that as they were going to the place of prayer, In other words, they were going back there on a regular basis. A slave girl having a spirit of divination met us who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. So Paul and his mission team would regularly gather there by the river to pray, to worship the Lord, to share the gospel, to lead people to Christ. And one day, while on their way to the riverside, they, they run into this slave girl who was possessed by a demon, an evil spirit. 
And she had demonic powers which allowed her to foretell the future and make other amazing revelations. And in so doing, she was making a lot of money for the people that owned her. And, and by the way, I think this goes without saying, but let me just say it anyway. It is very dangerous to consult fortune tellers and psychics and palm readers or play with tarot cards or mess around with Ouija boards because in doing so, you are likely exposing yourself to demonic activity. I mean, when you see anything about fortune-telling in the scriptures, there's, there's, there's a demon involved. There's this, the spirit realm is involved. And so you don't want anything to do with those things. And, and I would just say to the young people who are here as well, I know there's a very popular genre today in movies about, you know, movies about demonic possession um, and, and just the spirit world. And it seems like it's kind of like they're, they're really popular today. And it's like, you know, it's like going to a horror movie and, and getting scared. You know, it's like, oh, we like to scare ourselves. It's like, um, well, that's, th- this is a different realm. You don't want to mess with any movie and sit under a movie where you're being entertained, entertained uh, by demonic activity. Um, that's foolish. And I would just discourage you from ever wanting to be associated with anything like that because you know at the end of the day it's not something that Hollywood came up with. That stuff's real. And you don't want to expose yourself to it. Look at verse 17. Following after Paul and us, this little fortune teller chick, she kept crying out saying, these men are bondservants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. Does any of that sound familiar when you think about Jesus and uh, his interaction with demons? What, What did they always say? We know who you are. You are the son of the most high God. Please don't send us to the pit. And so this demon inside this girl sounded exactly like the demons that Christ confronted in the Gospels. They knew exactly who Jesus was. They knew exactly uh, who Paul was. And so Paul dealt with this demon the same way Christ dealt with demons. He cast the demon out of her. Look at verse 18. She continued doing this for many days when Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out, of, came out at that very moment. So this got annoying after a while. Paul, Paul let it go on for a while. It got annoying this, this girl following her around, telling everybody that they were servants of God. You say, well, what would be wrong with that? That sounds like a good thing. Well, I don't think Paul wanted his ministry to be associated with or undermined by this satanically inspired person. I mean, how would you feel if someone walked behind you at work or at school saying, this guy's a Christian and he's telling you the way of salvation? This guy's a Christian. This girl's a Christian. She's telling you the way of salvation. And everybody's kind of going, what's up with that person? And they're likely to associate, what, them with you. And so not only would it be annoying, right, but everyone would connect you with that wacko. So in the name of Jesus Christ, Paul commanded that demon to come out of her and she was instantly freed from her spiritual bondage and restored to her right mind. And while Luke didn't mention it in the text, 
I would like to think here that she wasn't just exercised, but she also got saved. Because most of the people that we see Jesus casting, if not all the people we see Jesus casting the demons out of, they also became followers of Christ, right? So you have a businesswoman, you have a fortune teller, and then you have a prison warden. Talk about a motley crew here to start a church, right? Verse 19 But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. So those who had been exploiting this young girl's demonic possession resented Paul because without the demon, she couldn't tell people's fortunes anymore. And without that ability to tell fortunes, she couldn't make any money And so verse 20, it says, when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, these men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which it is not lawful for us to accept or to observe being Romans. Interesting. So that's why uh, they equated Paul and and, and Silas and, and his crew to being Jews, not Christians, right? That's why there was no synagogue in this city. It was very pagan, Gentile country. And so they angrily drag Paul and Silas before the Philippian authorities and they falsely accuse them of being troublemakers who were trying to upset the Roman way of life by introducing uh, Jewish beliefs and customs and getting people to accept them. And so obviously these were slanderous charges. They were totally untrue, totally unfounded. Um, Paul and Silas were never offered a fair trial which they could defend themselves. The mob of Philippians, along with the leaders of Philippi, were convinced that these men were evil. They were dangerous. They deserved to be punished. Look at verse 22. The crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. So things turned violent. They stripped them. They beat them with rods. According to 2 Corinthians 11.25, this was one of three times that Paul was beaten with rods. Verse 23, when they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This seems a little bit over... Um, overdone. (laughs) Paul and Silas were sent to jail with special instructions to the warden to make sure they didn't escape. So they were to be kept in the maximum security wing and so the warden followed the instructions there, the commands, and he put them in the innermost cell and actually locked their feet in stocks like violent criminals. Now, from a human perspective, it looked like this was the end of that great wide-open door. Seems like the door just got shut when that jail cell got shut. But as always, God was up to something good, wasn't he? Romans 8, 28, God works all things together for good, 
to those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And so just when it appeared that God had closed another door for the gospel, he was about to expand Paul and Silas's witness in ways they could have never imagined by opening up another door, and that was the door to their cell. Verse 25, but about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. So in the middle of the night, the, the prisoners and the, and the warden are awakened by something they'd never heard before in that dark, lonely place. They, were, they heard singing and praying. Well, I don't know about you, but if I was Paul or Silas, I'm not sure I'd be in the singing mood. I mean, they'd been lied about. They've been unjustly treated, falsely accused, brutally beaten. They were probably bloody and bruised in tremendous pain. The jail cell was probably dark and damp and rancid and perhaps had rats scurrying around like most of those prisons in those days did. And yet in the midst of all this, they praised God. And of course, this is just a great reminder that no matter what is going on in our lives, it doesn't change the fact that God is worthy to be worshipped. He's worthy to be praised. I love Job, as I'm sure you do as well. Job 1, after losing everything, uh, Job 120, Job rose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and cursed God. Is that what it says? No, it says he worshipped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And I love the prophet Habakkuk. Obscure little book in the Old Testament. The, the prophet was wrestling with, the, with the, what seemed to be an injustice of God to use the wicked Babylonians to, to, to punish the, the evil Judeans and yes, God, I admit, we, I confess, we've, we've been evil, we've done wrong, we deserve to be disciplined, but by the Babylonians? Seriously? Those guys are way worse than we are. And so God answered Habakkuk and helped him work through all that, and then at the conclusion of his prophecy, Habakkuk chapter 3, he says this, verse 17, Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit in the, on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, in other words, that's what it would look like, that's what it, the experience would be when the Babylonians come and wreak havoc on Judah. He says, yet I will exult in the Lord and I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. I'm sure the jailer, the other prisoners were completely dumbfounded. They couldn't believe their ears, probably asking themselves, how could somebody in such a miserable situation be so joyful? Well, I think the answer to that question is their joy was independent of their circumstances. How about your joy? Is your joy dependent on how things are going in your life? 
that's typically the way it is, right? That's how it works. Things are going well in your life, you have a lot of joy. Things aren't going so well in your life, you don't have as much joy. Or are you joyful no matter what is going on in your life? I think the secret is what Paul said in Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in your circumstances always. Is that what it says? No, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. See, Paul is saying you've got to rejoice not in your circumstances because your circumstances are always changing. And if your joy is based on your circumstances, your joy is going to be like this. But you can rejoice always when you're rejoicing when your joy is tied to who? Christ. Because he never changes. He's always the same. And so it's no coincidence that one of the major themes of Paul's letters to the Philippians, to the church in Philippi, is joy. Paul knew of what he wrote. He, he, he modeled joy for them. I'm sure this became the stuff of legend in the church of Philippi. I remember when Paul and Silas, they got thrown into jail and they were singing at midnight. Man, we got we to gotta be joyful in this situation. And I think this is just, again, a good, good thing for us to consider because whenever we're in difficult circumstances, it's easy to complain, it's easy to worry, it's easy to be overcome with doubt or despair. But it's in those dark, lonely, painful times in our lives that we need to ask God for a song in the night. That's what God gave them, right? A song in the night. The, 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 Job talks about that. Job 35.10. The psalmist, Psalm 42 Verse 8, Psalm 77, verse 6, they talked about a song in the night. We need to ask the Lord to give us that, and he will. One commentator said this, Paul and Silas could have given in to despair and doubt, but they chose instead to believe that God's unseen hand was still there working things out for their good. And sure enough, God answered their prayer. They were praying Worshiping the Lord. And suddenly, verse 26, there came a great earthquake. That's some answer to prayer. I don't think they were praying for an earthquake. Hey, Lord, would you make a, you know, cause an earthquake to happen right now? To get us out of here? I don't think they were praying for an earthquake, but that's what, how God chose to answer their prayers. This great earthquake, and it was so great that the foundations of the prison house were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's chains were unfastened. I mean, that's an earthquake. Just blowing doors off, right? And, and chains are falling off. And I think it's interesting here that in Luke's two previous accounts of miraculous jailbreaks, both involving Peter, by the way, one in Acts chapter 5 and the other one in Acts chapter 12, Peter and one time John, who was with him, were directed by the angel who staged the jailbreak. Uh, they were instructed by the angel to escape, to get out of here, leave. You're free to go. Whereas here, Paul and Silas remain in prison. Why? Well, let's look what happens. Verse 27, when the jailer awoke and saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. Roman law required that whenever a guard allowed a prisoner to escape under their watch, they were to receive the same punishment the prisoner was to receive. 
And so the fact that the jailer was about to kill himself meant that there must have been some prisoners awaiting execution. They were on death row here. And rather than having to deal with the shame of being executed by the hands of his superiors, he decided, I'm just going to do it myself. I'm just going to commit suicide. Verse 28, but Paul cried out with a loud voice saying, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. So Paul reassured this this distraught warden that it wasn't necessary for him to kill himself because all the prisoners were present and accounted for. Verse 29 And he called for lights, and he rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas, and after he brought them out, he said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So all that happened not only woke him up from sleep, but it also awakened him to his lost condition, and he started connecting the dots. Okay, here these guys are are praying and they're singing to the Lord, this, this, God, this God of heaven, and, and now all of a sudden this earthquake, and I'm about to kill myself, and they're telling me, hey, don't worry about it, we're all here. And he, he just is convicted about his sin. He, he'd never seen or heard anything like this before. And, and Paul and, and Silas' light shined so brightly before this man in that dark place He was deeply convicted over his sinfulness and he asked them what he had to do to be saved from his sin. I mean, this is like one of those beach ball moments. Here, just guy goes, hey, what must I do to be saved? You ever had anybody ask you that? Hey, what must I do to be saved? It's like a beach ball here. Can you hit this? I think that's the question, by the way. Someone said it this way. That question must precede every genuine case of conversion. What must I do to be saved? A person must know that he's lost before he can be saved. It is premature to tell a person how to be saved until first he can say from his heart, I deserve to go to hell. And so this this man knew he was lost and he was hoping that these guys had the answer. Verse 31, Paul and Silas responded, to this question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. So Paul told him all he had to do was to place his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and he would be saved. In other words, there was nothing he needed to do, nothing he could do to make himself right with God. God had already done everything Necessary for a salvation through his son's finished work on the cross. So place your faith in Christ and what he did for you. Verse 32, and they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all who were in his house. And he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds. And immediately he was baptized, he and his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. So just like Lydia, the jailer demonstrated his, the genuineness of his conversion by immediately washing their wounds, um, serving them, being baptized, and then inviting them into his home. One commentator pointed this out. True conversion is much more than words. 
Too many professions of faith are accepted on the basis of no more than a bare assent to a form of words. A decision for Christ is often accorded an unchallengeable validity long after the so-called convert has given little or no practical evidence of living the Christian life. In other words, there's people still claiming they're a Christian and others believing they're a Christian because they prayed some prayer 25 years ago, but to this day, they never lived like a Christian. He went on, he said, if we are really saved, we are justified by faith alone, but not that faith that is alone. That was a, a, a nod to the reformers who used to say salvation is by faith alone, but faith that saves is never alone. In other words, it'll always come with actions. It'll always be, and that'll be the fruit, the evidence. Not that works save you, but they prove that you're saved is the point. A saving change immediately evidences itself not in instant doctrinal knowledge or a comprehensively perfect transformation of behavior, but in the practical following of Jesus with a childlike devotion that shines with the Savior's love. And by the way, don't be thrown off by this you and your household, he and all his household with his whole household. You see that mentioned several times here? So this guy gets saved. Does that mean his whole family all of a sudden became Christians too? Well, I think the text clearly implies that everyone in this man's family was old enough to understand the word and believe the gospel. So this shouldn't be used as a proof text for infant baptism. Like, well, look, they baptized their babies. Well, I don't see any babies in that text, do you? That's an assumption, right? It's a wrong assumption. Nor should this make anyone married to a Christian assume that that makes them a Christian too. Oh, my husband's a Christian, so that means I'm a Christian. Or my wife's a Christian, that means I'm a Christian. Nor should it make anyone raised in a Christian home assume that they're Christians. How many times have you heard somebody say, when you ask them, hey, so... How long have you been a Christian? Well, I was born a Christian. No, you weren't. You were born a child of the devil, according to Scripture. If there's any kids in here, listen, just because, just because your mom and dad are Christians doesn't mean you're a Christian. You have to personally trust Jesus Christ for your salvation. You must personally commit your life to follow Jesus Christ. You, you shouldn't be just riding on mom and dad's coattails, as they say. Someone said it this way, God doesn't have any grandkids. He's only got kids. So you want to make sure you're one of his kids. Well, let's see how this ends, verse 35. Now, when day came, in other words, the sun came up, the chief magistrates sent their policemen saying, release those men. So apparently word had gotten back to the you know, main office already, to headquarters. They send some guys back, hey, release these guys. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the chief magistrates have sent to release you, therefore come out now and go in peace. You'd think Paul would be like, oh, phew, can't wait to get out of this prison. This is great. Thanks, see you later. No, Paul said, verse 37, they have beaten us in public without trial, men who are Romans, and we have thrown, and have thrown us into prison, and now they're sending us away secretly? No way, Jose. 
Not really. No, indeed. But let them come themselves and bring us out. The policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates. They were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Apparently they had known these guys weren't just Jews. They were actually Roman citizens. And they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. So Paul refused to quietly slip out of jail and out of town because that that would make it appear that they were guilty of some wrongdoing. But it was the town officials who had actually broken the law. Paul and Silas had rights as Roman citizens that had been violated. Every Roman citizen was entitled to a fair trial and no Roman citizen was ever supposed to be beaten with rods. And so by demanding a personal escort here, Paul wasn't being prideful. He wasn't seeking restitution necessarily. I think he was just holding these officials accountable for their actions and forcing them to set the record straight. And in so doing, I think he was ensuring that they wouldn't take any further legal action against the members of this new infant church that he was about to leave behind. He wanted to protect this this baby church, by making sure it had, had a good reputation among the Philippian authorities. So the magistrates actually came at Paul's request. They realized that they had messed up, and so they came with hat in hand, released them personally, but then urged them to depart from Philippi so as not to cause any further disturbance. But notice, before Paul and Silas left, they went back to Lydia's house, to encourage that small group of new believers. Verse 40, they went out of the prison and entered the house of Lydia, and when they saw the brethren, they encouraged them and departed. The brethren, okay, there's this growing group of believers. So you've got a converted businesswoman and her kids, her servants. You've got a converted fortune teller. You've got a con- now you've got a converted prison warden and his family, Maybe you've got a few ex-cons who had gotten saved as a result of that earthquake, seeing that, going through that experience, hearing Paul, overhearing Paul present the gospel to the jailer. And so you got this little baby church that was planted, the first church in Europe. And this was the, the good work that God had begun to do in Philippi. And when Paul wrote his letter to them in Philippians 1, 6, he says, for I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. You see, how does any of this apply to me, apply to us? Well, 24 years ago, God began a good work here in Montgomery when he planted Lakeside Bible Church. And he wants to carry it to completion. He will carry it to completion. And part of that process of God completing what he started here in this church is him bringing more people to faith in Christ. He's already sovereignly brought all sorts of people with all sorts of testimonies into this church And he's done it all in the same way by opening our hearts, 
granting us repentance and faith to believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the one who died and rose again and is the only way to be made right with God, to have our sins forgiven. But guess what? There are others in our community who God has chosen for salvation and they're waiting for someone to tell them what they must do to be saved. And the question is, will we love them enough to tell them? You don't need to go across the ocean, halfway around the world, and be a part of something like Love Europe, like I was. Whether you realize it or not, you're part of Love Montgomery, or Love Conroe, or Love Magnolia, or Love Willis, Love Wood Forest, Love Walden, Love Bentwater, Love Cape Conroe. You fill in the blank, right? Love wherever God has put you. Love Montgomery High School. Love Oak Creek Junior High. Love Lone Star College. God has opened up an amazing door for us here in this community to reach many with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for opening up our hearts to believe the gospel. You are so kind and good to do that. And Lord, thank you for opening up great doors of opportunity for us to share Christ with others every day, everywhere we go. Forgive us for not taking advantage of those opportunities more. But Lord, I pray that this, this sermon, this text would inspire us, even just the example of these random people getting saved, being converted, um, and, and, and a church being planted thousands of years ago. It would just be a reminder to us that you have people in this community, in our sphere of influence, that you want to save. And they just need to know what they must do to be saved. And so help us to be faithful mouthpieces that you can use to explain that to them. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.